Welcome back, everybody. I'm so glad all of you are joining us online or those of you that are watching this on demand later in our wonderful studio audience. We've got a great group of people right here in house. And if you want to be a part of the studio audience, just let us know. We'd love to have you. It's always fun because at the end of this, we do Q&A. But then at the end of the end of it, we actually do a, 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 just a, a Q&A right here just for the studio audience. If you ever want to join us, come on by, and it's our chance to just talk afterwards. Uh, we're studying the book of James, and one of the things I want to say tonight is don't confuse the book of James as a book of works. I know he says faith without works is dead. It talks a lot about how we live our life and our works and principles and, and things that we follow. But I want you to understand that what James is saying is not that uh, it really isn't important what you believe as long as you live a good life, because that's a feeling in the world today. You know, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're a good person, as long as you're a good life. That's not what James is saying by saying faith without works is dead. James, the question James would ask is why would you live a good life except because you have certain beliefs about humanity. It's your beliefs that are causing you to live this way. What James is getting at is that a living faith produces works. A living faith produces a life of action. So he's not showing you how to get faith. Paul does that all throughout the New Testament. James is showing you what your life looks like when you have faith. How your faith is demonstrated when it is a living faith. With that, we're going to look at the very last verse of chapter 3, jump into the beginning of chapter 4, and we're talking about living in Christian community. If we are a follower of Jesus Christ, if we have a living faith, what does it mean to live in Christian community? What does it mean to be a part of a church family, to be a part of a small group, a connect group, a life group, whatever group that you're a part of, what does it look like And the background of the text is what kind of community does the gospel create? So when the gospel lands in your heart, when you understand grace, when you understand your identity in Christ, how do you respond to other people in community? So we're going to look at three things tonight. We're going to look at the importance of Christian community, why it's important, why we live in Christian community. We're going to look at the enemy of Christian community because Satan is trying to destroy our community does not want it to be harmonious. And then finally, we're going to look at the remedy for the attack of Satan in our life. Let's start with verse 18, very end of chapter 3. It says, those who are peacemakers. You know the pattern that James uses that we've been highlighting? James always shows you first who you are, your identity in Christ, before he shows you what to do. And he's doing that again here. Your identity, who you are in Christ, is you are a peacemaker. Now, if you're a peacemaker, if you have a living faith, you're a peacemaker, the, what you would do, what would happen is you would plant seeds of peace. And then here's the result. Then you would reap a harvest of righteousness. So he shows you who you are. You're a peacemaker. Then he shows you what to do, plant seeds of peace. And then he shows you the result. You'll reap a harvest of righteousness. So let's look at number one, the first thing in your notes, the importance of Christian community. Now, verse 18, he says, you will reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, let's let's talk for just a moment about this word righteousness. There's two uses of the word righteousness in the Bible that you see throughout the Bible. The first use of the word righteousness is right with God. 
Uh, This is what Paul teaches over and over and over when Paul is teaching doctrine. Righteousness is a noun. It's who we are because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. We are right with God because of Jesus. That's grace. That's one way to use the word righteousness. The other way to use the word righteousness is it also means to be right with our neighbors, to be right in community, to be right with the world around us. So Paul, when he teaches and he uses the word in a doctrinal sense, he uses it as a noun. Jesus throughout the gospels often would use the word righteousness as a verb, meaning be right with other people, love one another. It's how we serve one another. James, throughout the book of James, actually uses the word in both tenses. And in this context here, reap a harvest of righteousness. He's talking about both being right with God, which happens through grace, and being right with others. In in other words, when you plant seeds of peace because of the gospel, because of the grace that's on your life, you're not only going to be right with God, you're not only going to have conditional righteousness, as Paul uses the word, but you're also going to be right with others. You're going to have peace in relationships. You're going to have peace in healthy Christian community. In other words, James says everything gets righted. So righteousness is the crop. In verse 18, what is the seed? What is the seed? What do you plant in the ground if you're going to produce a crop of righteousness? You plant peacemaking. Peacemaking is what you plant in the ground. It's the seed. What is peacemaking? It's creating oneness. It's harmonious community. Here's the challenge. We as Americans in our modern Western world, we live in a very individualistic society. And this Western modern culture that we live in likes to pound into us that you are who you choose to be. Whatever you identify, that's who you are. You choose who you are in this world. It's all about individual rights, individual expression, individual freedom. But most of the world outside of this modern Western world and what the Bible says is that is simply not true. You are not who you decide you are. In fact, you are a product of your family, of your culture, of your community, of your upbringing. Social scientists will tell you this. Your belief system, what you believe about right and wrong, what you believe about marriage, what you believe about abortion, what you believe about politics, is much more a product of the relationships in your life than rational thinking. I know we like to consider ourselves free thinkers. We like to say that I sat around and I thought up what I thought was best and and, and I came up with these thoughts and nobody influenced me and I just kind of weighed it all out. But the truth is you find your beliefs most plausible by people you like and who like you and by people you admire and who admire you. So if you lean blue in the world that we live in or if you lean red in the world that we live in, It's because you either were around people that you admired and admired you or you liked and they liked you who lean blue or lean red and their belief system rubbed off on you. That's why many kids kind of follow the the political leanings and the worldview leanings and the different belief systems of the environment they grew up in. Now, I say that because it's critical as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, not to allow our environment to shape our beliefs. But as we become followers of Jesus, to open our heart to the Holy Spirit and ask the Holy Spirit, reshape my beliefs. 
allow my beliefs to get in alignment with you and your word as opposed to simply being a product of my environment because the truth is none of us just came up with our beliefs. Now, why does this matter? Uh, why, does, why am I talking about this? Well, let me give you an example. In the Bible, we see places where when somebody commits a terrible sin in the Bible, very often the entire family is punished for one person's sin. The father's sin, the whole family is swallowed up in the earth. And in our modern thinking, in our Western world that we live in, we think that's terrible. How, how could the whole family be punished for what one person did? It's because almost every society in the world outside of our Western view realize that it is impossible for a person to commit or do X, Y, or Z without the family environment they grew up in making them capable of doing it. So everybody's culpable is what the world believes, either positively by showing them how to do it in a negative sense or negatively by withholding things like love and care and support, which push them down a path of committing atrocities. Now, I know we don't want to believe this as Americans. We don't want to believe this in the Western world. But if you talk to a social scientist, they will tell you that it is true. I mean, think about it like this. How many of us grew up saying, I'm never going to be like my parents, and yet when we get into our 20s and 30s, we find so many areas of our life where we catch ourselves being just like our parents in so many ways. So what's the point of all of this? There are people who have attended Coastline Church for years. Some of you listening to me right now have attended for years, and because of attending our church, you feel much better, but you've never gotten better. You feel better because you hear the message, you're, you're part of the worship, but you've never really changed. You've never really gotten better. And then there's other people who've come to our church and they've been completely transformed inside and out. What is the difference? What is the difference who, who, who somebody who attends our church and they feel better because they attend our church without getting better and somebody who comes and they're completely transformed inside out? Here's the difference. The Bible tells us when you study the Bible, what it means to live in Christian community is we are to honor one another, we're to accept one another, we're to bear each other's burdens, we're to forgive one another, we're going to confess our sins to each other so that we can be healed and, and, and we can find freedom. Here's the point, you can't do that on Sunday. You can't do that in a worship service. The only way you can live out real Christian community, what James is talking about, is in small group context. And so without a small group, without being a part of a small group in our church family, you may get inspired because of the message on Sunday, and you may be inspired because the worship experience is wonderful, and you may feel better without actually getting better. Because when you study the Bible, you cannot get better. You cannot grow in character, Christian virtue, without being a part, an active participant in real Christian community. And this is why we build our church on groups. This is why we want everyone to be in a group, because what we do on weekends is an event. What we do in groups is work out the Christian life so that we can see growth in our faith. And this is what James is diving deep on. It, it's what Solomon teaches in the Proverbs. You become like the people you spend the most time with. 
So if you want to be somebody who's growing in Christian virtue, growing in Christian values, growing in, in a Christian worldview, in a Christian lifestyle, you have to spend time with people who are on the same path as you. Just attending an event isn't going to produce growth in your life. It's living in Christian community that produces growth. In other words, what, what James is teaching, what the Bible says, is there's no supernatural character change without deep involvement in community. It's community that God uses to work out our character. And so we get into chapter 4, verse 1, and he, he, he starts to get into a number of issues in Christian community. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James is upset about all the fighting. He's like, cut it out. This is not the way we live. Now, what he's saying is there's two ways where you can fail to be a part of a genuine, authentic Christian community. The first way you can fail is simply by not getting involved, not getting into it, not seeing the importance of being in a small group, being too busy or, or being too introverted or just, just not wanting to open up to other people. We fail by not getting involved. Or the second way that James is pointing out here is we fight and we cause all sorts of issues, which brings me to point number two, the enemy of Christian community it's pride. It's pride. First, let's look at what causes the breakdown. Let, let, let's see how the process of pride works. You want, what James is saying, is, is you want to please yourself. You're making you the number one person in your world. You're putting yourself first. Go back to verse 2. You desire, James says. That's that word over-desire that we looked at a few weeks ago. It's hedonism. It's a word that means you just want to please yourself. All you care about is you. You desire but do not have, so you kill, you covet, but you cannot get what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Now, what I'm about to teach you is incredibly simple, and almost every single person should understand this because we all struggle with it. And here's what James is saying. The reason Christian community breaks down, the reason we, the, the, the way pride manifests is we want to please ourselves. I want to please myself. You want to please yourself. And, and every day, there are a hundred different ways every single day that I would rather put my own comfort, I would rather put my own convenience first over everyone else around me. And that is the reason why Christian community breaks down. It's because we choose to put ourselves ahead of everyone around us. Let me show you a picture of a healthy model of Christian community, something that you'll relate to, something that you'll understand. And this is a picture of how we're to live in Christian community. It's a mother with a child. Think about it. No child has ever been born or received life except that a mother made a decision to lay down her life and carry that child within and care for that child after the child was born. 
That's a picture of healthy Christian community. This is what James is getting at here. Think about it. Most of us are here today in life, wherever you're at watching this right now, because our parents, for the most part, lay down 18 years of their time, their money, their energy for us to get to where we're at today. And what James is saying is to see healthy Christian community, you've got to embrace this principle if you're really going to live and enjoy life. Because to refuse this principle, to refuse to lay down yourself for others, and to only live for yourself produces spiritual death. And it'll make you miserable as a person and miserable as a Christian. I've got to choose every day to lay down my life. And you do too. And think about it. Every time you give, every time you serve on a team, every time you lead a group, those are little deaths in your life, little areas where you're dying to yourself that is leading to life. When you die to yourself, it brings you to life. You're laying down your life for the good of the community. And this is what Christian community is all about. It's what heaven is. Heaven is to lose our independence, to lose putting myself first. But what, it, what happens when I, when I give up my independence? It brings me freedom. It brings me life. It brings me happiness. You see, what hell is, hell is to maintain my independence, to become more and more miserable living only for myself. And the breakdown of community is when you want to leave simply to when you want to live simply to please yourself. Now, that that that's what happens is we want to please ourselves. That's the cause of the breakdown. But what is the cause behind the cause? Well, it's that word I said earlier, pride. The reason we live for ourselves is pride. Pride puts ourself above everyone around us. Look at verse five again with me. <clears throat> Do you think scripture says without reason? that he jealously longs for the spirit that he caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud. God is against the proud, but God shows favor to the humble. He's against the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Jonathan Edwards, one of the great revivalists, one of the great preachers, pastors of, of American history in the 1700s, uh, they're, they're having massive revivals, but what he noticed is the revivals would come and go. There would be a revival, and all of a sudden, the revival would stop. It, it would just, it, it would be quenched. It, it would dissipate. And so he spent some time analytically thinking, why did these revivals stop? And he actually wrote a book on it called Thoughts on Revival. And what Jonathan Edwards says is what kills revival, what kills revival is spiritual pride. And in the book, he made a list. It's the killer of, of revival in my life. If, if I want my spirit to be revived in God and grow in my faith, this kills it faster than anything. And it's a list of pride, but he also shows the opposite of humility. Uh, he says, number one, spiritual pride makes you more aware of other people's faults than your own faults. Humility helps you be far more aware of your own faults than other people's faults. Pride leads you, when you speak of other people's faults, to have an attitude of contempt and disdain. But humility leads you to speak of other people's faults with grief and mercy. 
Pride leads you to quickly separate from people who uh, criticize you or you criticize, but humility causes you to stick with people through difficult relationships. Listen to this one. A proud person is dogmatic, and they are sure about every point of their belief. They cannot distinguish between major and minor beliefs because every belief they have is a major belief. Five, a proud person either loves to confront because they like to win or they refuse to confront because they don't like criticism or controversy. A humble person only confronts when absolutely necessary, but they always do it in love. If you overlove or underlove to confront people, you are not humble. A proud person, here's the last thing he says, is often unhappy and sorry for themselves. Think about that. A proud person is often unhappy and sorry for themselves. Why? Because they know how life ought to go for them. And life isn't going the way they think life should be going. And they're unhappy and they're sorry because they've got this pride where they know how it should end up. And they're sure they deserve a good life. You see, humble people say, I deserve to be cast in hell forever. And it's only by the grace of God I'm saved. You see, proud people are people who are filled with self-pity. You see, most pride in life we call arrogance. We call arrogant people proud people. But I also want you to see something here. What Jonathan Edwards is getting at is you also see people who struggle with low self-esteem. It's also a form of pride. And low self-esteem also kills Christian community. What is low self-esteem? It's always looking down on yourself. It's feeling inferior. It's feeling not good enough, not worthy enough. And here's why low self-esteem is pride. When you struggle with low self-esteem, what you're saying is that your opinion about your life is greater than what God says about you. Think about that for a moment. That's pride. To struggle with low self-esteem is the height of arrogance because you're saying your opinion about your life is superior to God's opinion about your life. You're actually putting yourself above God. And when you feel sorry for yourself, it kills relationships because it's a form of pride. So in your notes, one of the things I put there is superiority and inferiority complexes are both forms of pride. So what's the remedy? How do we counteract pride? Well, let's go back to verse 6. He gives us more grace. Grace, grace, grace. This is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. He will exalt you if you humble yourself. What is the remedy to pride? Humility. Humility. And I want to say something very powerful that James is pointing out here. Humility is not being shy or lacking self-assurance. Being humble doesn't mean you're shy, doesn't mean you lack self-assurance. Think about what James is saying. James, if you believe that there is a devil, and you believe that the devil is powerful, James says, be humble, then go face off with the devil. Think about that. that that's confidence right there. That's boldness. In other words, James is saying, be humble so don't be afraid of anything. 
Be humble, so stand with boldness. You see, being humble is not fearing anything. Think about Moses for a moment. Moses goes to the most powerful leader in the world, the Pharaoh. And Moses says to Pharaoh, I want you to give up your entire free labor force. The cornerstone of all of your wealth, the cornerstone of your military, I want you to give them all up. I want you to let them go with absolutely no remuneration at all. Think about the boldness and the confidence that Moses had to have to go speak to Pharaoh like that. Moses was incredibly bold, and yet the Bible says he was the most humble person to ever live. How is that so? Well, think about it like this. Moses was not courageous and bold in spite of being humble. Moses was courageous and bold because he was humble. It was his humility that gave him courage. It was his humility that gave him boldness. Let me give you a thought on humility. Humility in your notes is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. You're not belittling yourself. You're not looking down on yourself. You're just not making yourself the primary focus of your life. You're making Jesus the focus of your life. Because, and and here's how humility works. Inside you are supremely confident because you know you're worth to God. You've humbled yourself to God. You've, You've submitted to God. This is why humble people are the most gracious people when someone attacks them. You can be ugly and horrible to a humble person, and they will show you grace. Why? Because they know who they are in Christ. They don't have to defend themselves. They don't have to retaliate. They have humility. They can be bold when they need to be bold, but they don't have to be ugly and retaliate. Proud people are not courageous. People with pride, they're not courageous. They're not forgiving. They're always having meltdowns in their life over how people treat them. So, as we end, how do we become humble? Well, chapter 4, what James does is he gives us two things that lead us to godly humility. Here's number one in your notes. Receive, receive, receive the enormity, enormity, I know that's an unusual word, the enormity of God's love for you. You see, again, humble people submit to God. They place themselves under God. What that means is it's not what I think about my life that is important. It's what God thinks about my life that is important. So if God says that I'm ahead and not the tail, if God says that I'm above and not beneath, if God says greater is in me than he that is in the world, if God says I'm loved and I'm a son and not a servant, I'm I'm a daughter and not a slave, if God says I'm worthy and forgiven and righteous, then for me to think or feel anything else about who I am is the height of arrogance and pride. I've got to submit myself to God and believe in who God says that I am. Look at James verse 4 again, chapter 4, verse 4. He says something very interesting. He says, you adulterous people, you adulterous people. In the literal Greek translation, the the New American Standard Bible captures this. It's adulteresses. It's a feminine plural of the word to be someone who commits adultery, but it's the feminine plural of that word. He's calling all of us, men and women, adulteresses. That's that's a little confusing, but just follow me for a moment. Throughout the Bible, the Bible describes God's love for us. It describes God's love for us like a shepherd loves sheep. It describes God's love for us like a father loves a child. But it also describes God's love for us as a husband who loves a wife. And any time we sin, 
We sin against God. And the Bible says every time we sin, we commit spiritual adultery against God. Because God is a husband who loves his wife. And every time we sin, we cheat on God. Every time we choose ourself over God, we're cheating on him. We commit adultery. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And then it's a little cryptic in verse 5. He says, or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives more grace, greater grace to us. He jealously longs. Now, when you're in love with somebody, you have to give up a degree of your freedom, a degree of your independence to be in love with somebody, but you do it gladly. James is painting a picture here of a lover who's been abused. James is showing us a picture of a lover who's been betrayed, a lover who's been cheated on, a lover that never abused or betrayed the one they loved. And I want you to see the picture here. What God does in this picture is God becomes vulnerable to us. Think about this. God puts himself in a position where he gives us the ability to hurt him. He gives us the ability to betray him. He gives us the ability to commit spiritual adultery on him. And when you think about it, we owe God every dimension of our lives, and yet so often we only run to him when we're in trouble. What God should say to us, honestly, for the way we've treated him, for the way we've cheated on him, for the way we've betrayed him, God should say, I don't want anything to do with you. But what does he say? He says, I love you. I jealously long for you, and I'll give you the grace to come back to me. You see, when you think about that, it creates humility in your life. I know I'm out of time, but let me, let me give you the last principle quickly. Number two, this helps produce humility in your life. You've got to embrace the upside-down principle at the heart of the universe. We, we, we live in a universe where there's this upside-down principle at play. He says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves to God, then uh, uh, resist the devil. He will flee from you. And he says, I will exalt the humble. Humble people are lowly, but God says, no, I'm going to take humble people and exalt them. That's an upside-down principle. But you see it all throughout the Bible. Matthew 20, verse 16, the last will be first, and the first will be last. It doesn't make sense. If you're last, you come in last. No. He says, if you come in last, I'm going to make you first. And if you come in first, I'm going to put you in last. Look at Matthew 10, 39. Whoever finds their life is going to lose it. So if you live for yourself and all you do is put yourself first, you're going to lose your life. But whoever loses their life, for my sake, they're the one that's going to find it. It's an upside-down principle. Proverbs eleven twenty four. 24. One person gives freely yet gains even more. That doesn't make any sense. If you're giving away what you have, you should have less. And yet God says if you give away what you have, you're going to have more. But another person withholds, they're stingy, and, and, and holding on to what they have actually leads them into poverty. It is an upside-down principle in the universe. So how does it work with humility? If you die to your own power, if you die to your own control, if you lay down your life, you're going to get your life back. But if you live for yourself, if you put yourself first, you're going to become more and more miserable 
and life on earth is going to feel like hell. And when you understand this, it's the beginning of humility. It's humility that creates a healthy community. It's the heart of our universe. It's the heart of history. Think about the Trinity. For all of eternity, you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who for eternity constantly defer to one another, constantly serve one another, constantly love one another, constantly put each other first. It's how life works. And unless we understand that we're created in the image of God and God is someone who lays his life down for others, it's always been we're never going to find true freedom and happiness. You see, sin is when I call my own shots. But when I lay down my life, I find freedom. And God modeled this. Let me, let me end with this verse, Romans 15, 1. L- listen to this for, for a moment. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. That is the biggest understatement in the Bible. Who is strong? Jesus. Jesus was strong, and yet he came to earth and bore all of our failings and all of our weaknesses. He didn't live to please himself, but he went to a cross on our behalf. And that's why it says he gives us greater grace, because he knows we can't do it without him. Your willpower is never going to get you to this place. It's his grace. When you understand this beautiful upside-down principle of laying your life down for others, and you receive his grace and, and receive the enormity of God's love for you, it makes you incredibly humble and incredibly bold, and that's what the gospel produces in our life. Let me pray, and then we're going to jump into some questions. Father, I thank you for this message. God, let it challenge each and every one of us to not just attend church, but be a part of church. Be a part of community. Find a group where we can work out our Christian values, our faith, our virtues, as James is is showing us here. Thank you for this teaching, God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Mr. Greg, let's jump into some questions. Amen and amen. Oh, my. A lot of stuff there, huh? Yeah, it is. Let me check. It's green. You're good. Oh, my goodness. Can we, can we just give Pastor a, just a round of applause for such a... Woo-hoo. All right. So, so first, I love how this is all starting to kind of build upon each other. Yeah. Right? And so last week, you, uh, you, you brought up this point that we're going to be judged, right, according to... So what did we do? with what God gave us. Mm-hmm. And today, to kind of add a little bit of uh, a little bit more color, you also brought in the fact that we are products of our environment, right? And so we are, we are being groomed by who we're around and what we see, and, and our families, so to speak, can suffer, and we suffer for our families and this, that, and the other, right? And so can you, can you explain how the two work together? Yeah, I mean, that's why we need the Holy Spirit and we need Christian community. We need to be around like-minded people who are passionate about God, but not uh, people who are passionate about their opinion, but passionate about searching God for truth, really wanting to know 
what does God have to say? Uh, you know, we're obviously in an election season right now. That's been a little bit crazy, uh, and, and it's crazy amongst Christians. And one of the things I always try to get across to Christians is don't sacrifice your influence for your opinion. You know, in America, your opinion does not count. It doesn't. Like, no one counts your opinion in America. Your vote counts, so go vote, but your opinion doesn't count. So it's better at times to keep your opinion to yourself and just be salt and be light. Don't lose your influence over your opinion. Like, we're called to be salt and light, and that's priority. Mm -hmm. uh, that's priority, but we got to be around people who understand truth and, and are encouraging us. Not that everyone's going to be perfect and not that every small group is perfect, but if we're built on pursuing God with, with an open heart and, and relying on His grace and, and not allowing it to get religious then what happens is we begin to grow as we work this stuff out in our life and our values change and the way we see life changes and we begin to understand, wow, there's a lot more of the American culture uh, negatively impacting my faith than I realize. You know, I, I thought, you know, this was a... I mean, think about it. The, the kingdom of God is diametrically opposed to the American dream. And yet, so often, we as American Christians use our faith not to advance God's kingdom, but we use our faith to accomplish the American dream. Like, just, just read a lot of the prayer requests in most churches in America. I mean, 90% of the prayers are about the American dream. I need a better job. I need a nicer house. I need this. I need that. Very few people are putting in prayers, let's go to Afghanistan and plant an underground church. Let's go into China. Let's go into Russia. Let's go into you know, all the world and advance the kingdom and, and really pray. And, and so one of the things I always you know, ask people, if God answered every single one of your prayers, would it change the world or just change you? And, and it kind of helps you see if, if you've got tunnel vision or not. And that's why we need Christian community, because we all have blind spots. Yeah. And I need that community to show me when I'm not seeing things clearly. Ooh, my goodness. So there's, a, there's another question here that's kind of following along this same vein of, uh, of community and uh, family and going back to, uh, you know, families basically being punished for one person's sin, right? Uh, it literally says, following the point that you made about the whole family being culpable for one person's sin, in that same vein, is the entire family of believers culpable for one person's sin when they're a part of the body? You know, what, what I'm talking about is what social scientists understand and believe and what other cultures understand and believe. Now, obviously, in America, you know, if somebody commits murder, we're not putting the whole family in prison. But there are villages in the world today, and there are parts of the world today where if somebody commits murder, the whole family is punished. Mm. And I'm not getting into a, a debate on whether that's right or wrong. The issue is not, is that right or that's wrong? The issue is the reason they punish the whole family is they understand that we are more of a product of our relationships than we're a product of rational thought or rational thinking or free thinking. That's the point I'm trying to make. So I'm not, I'm not getting into, is it right or is it wrong to punish a family? You know, that, 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 the Bible doesn't get into that, you know, because in the New Testament, God says, I'll remember their sin no more. Under the Old Covenant, I'll punish the children, uh, the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. But under the New Covenant, God says, I'll remember your sins no more. We're under the New Covenant, so that's not an issue for us today. I'm simply using that to prove the point 
to everyone, don't deceive yourself. Don't think that you decided you lean this way politically or you lean that way on abortion or you lean this way about marriage or sexuality because you sat there one day and you just came up with these thoughts on your own and you decided like, you know, free thinking and, and I really weighed it all out and philosophized and realized this is what's true. No, you, you are a product of your environment. You're not a product of free thinking or rational thought as much as we think we are in America. That's the point. And, and so when it comes down to, because what you're talking about, as always, is, uh, is countercultural, right? And this American culture is in everything, obviously, that we do because we're in America. Yeah. And so when you're talking to someone that... And we don't even know it. Well, and that's, that's what started yeah. to be interesting. And you did bring up the point that if... A lot of times we pray to achieve the American dream instead of advance, advancing God's kingdom. And so what would you say to, uh, to someone that is working competition, right, that's working in a corporate job or that's working, working as a business? And we've also in America fostered this, this culture of competition, right, and where there is this idea that you will literally, like, die or starve. Well, or... healthy competition is biblical. Paul says, run for the prize, there's that that's a competition you're yeah. running for a prize paul says and he says that's how the faith walk works is you're running for a prize now you're not necessarily competing with other people you're competing to be the best of what god has called you to be and in the corporate world there's nothing wrong with succeeding and making money and advancing business the bible is filled with business people mm -hmm. who are very successful and very wealthy the difference is, are you building wealth for your... And, and we're going to dig into this next week. Uh, I'm just warning you now, next week is a very tough message because we're dealing with life control illusion. And one of the ways you know whether or not you struggle with life control illusion is how you spend your money. Are you spending more money on yourself than what is right? Uh, and, and the reason you would spend more money on yourself than what is right is because you think it's yours. You earned it. Like, I earned this money. I worked hard for this money. It's mine. I can do whatever I want with it, and that just means you think it's yours. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that's, that's the American dream as opposed to, no, I'm going to work hard at business. I'm going to make millions of dollars. I'm going to advance my career because God has given me a kingdom purpose to my life. And the more successful I am and the harder I work and, and, and the more diligent I am with what God has put in my hands, the more I can further and advance the kingdom because it's all his. I'm just a steward of it all. I'm a steward of my talents. I'm a steward of my faith. I'm a steward of my prayer life. I'm a steward of, you know, I was talking to a guy in our church yesterday um, who during COVID, uh, he's always been a faithful tither. Uh, during COVID, uh, he's never made a million dollars ever in his career, made $2 million this year during COVID. Man. And I said, <clears throat> and he says, and I don't even know what's coming next. And this may be a one-time thing. I said, whoa, 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 you have to steward your faith. If, if, if you pulled off $2 million this year, you need to raise your faith level because you have to give an account for how you use the faith that God has given you. So what are you going to believe God for now? What's next? God is testing you, can you handle this? And, and, our, and, and, and here's the good thing is he's handling it well because he doesn't look at himself as the owner. He knows God did this because he knows he didn't have the ability to pull this off. And so he's looking at, it's all God's. I'm just managing it for God. Now you got to use your faith to go to the next level. 
And so this is, this is great, right? Because there, this, this also brings up the question of, of esteem. It brings up the question of pride, right? And so there's a question here. Our culture talks so much about having high self-esteem, right? And so is that something that the Christian should work towards? And doesn't that lead to pride in and of itself? How do we have healthy self-esteem? The gospel. We have to allow the gospel to go from our head to go to our heart. You see, most people either struggle with high self-esteem or they struggle with low self-esteem. What's the antidote to both? The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is this. You are far more wicked, far more evil than you ever dared to imagine, if you'd be honest with yourself. But at the very same time, you are far more loved and accepted than you ever hoped for or dreamed of. That's the gospel. When you take those two thoughts of being far more evil and wicked than than you ever imagined and far more loved and accepted than you ever hoped for, you allow those two thoughts to land in your heart. What it produces is somebody with gospel self-esteem. What is gospel self-esteem? I don't struggle with high self-esteem. I don't look down on anybody because I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm wicked. I know I'm evil without his grace. But at the same time, I don't look down on myself because I know I'm loved. I know I'm accepted. So what gospel self-esteem produces is someone who's incredibly humble and incredibly bold at the exact same time. And that's the opposite of high self-esteem or low self-esteem. That, that is absolutely amazing to me. And you were, if you, if you can just elaborate on that a little bit more, because this, this, this notion of being fearless and humble at the same time, huge disconnect in, in our culture Right, and so can can you just... Yeah, I mean, going back to Moses, he was the most humble man in the Bible, yet the guy was bold. I mean, he goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. And you see this all throughout the Bible. Uh, Elijah goes and stands before the king and says, before whom the God I serve, that's the humility, like I'm submitted to the God I serve, it's not going to rain for three years. I mean, he's that's a death wish. I mean, you're telling the king it's not going to rain for three years. You're basically putting a curse on the guy's kingdom, but you got to be humble and you got to be bold to do that. You can't do that in arrogance. There's got to be, because humility, again, humility is not self-pity, it's not shyness, it's not, humility is self-confidence, not self-confidence, it's God-confidence. You're submitted to God. You're submitted to God in your life because to be humble is to place yourself under the Word of God to submit yourself to God's opinion, to submit yourself to God's thought. How does God look at me? Well, God sees me as the head and not the tail. God sees me as greater is in me than he that is in the world. That's how God views me. So if I'm going to be humble, then I've got to submit myself to God's opinion of my life. Absolutely amazing and absolutely powerful. Everybody, we are out of time for the night uh, thank you all for being here. Pastor, thank you for bringing such a huge, powerful word tonight. Thank you,